Hi everybody, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Emmanuel. Uh, we are in the story of Noah. We started this last week and next week we are having our standalone Easter service. 10.30, join us. It is going to be an epic Easter presentation. Invite your friends. Don't forget Easter. It's the time when people come to church who don't normally come to church. And coronavirus time is the time that people come to church who don't normally come to church. So two reasons to confidently invite your friends to join us. Uh, easy as anything, just get the link out there. Subscribe, uh, click on, like, do whatever's necessary. Give it profile, share it in every direction you can. Retweet, Facebook, anything to get profile to Easter. Next Sunday, 10.30, it's going to be so good. We're in the story of Noah. We began this last week. This is a brilliant story for us to be in during a time of national, international crisis, global crisis. When you're in a global crisis, you need a global crisis story uh, to lean into. You need a global crisis God who's been here before. And uh, we need big answers. And so this big epic story, I think, gives us a lot of them. That's why I want us to go back to it today. We're in uh, chapter six of Genesis and verses five to eight. It's going to get read to us now. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, last week we... Uh, had slightly different surroundings. Um, this is still my house. I'm still under house arrest. Um, and so, uh, though I've got rid of that golden microphone, um, I'm in my living room, the golden microphone, the, you know, the kind of Elvis Presley looking thing. Um, this week I've got this kind of nice little time mic, a bit less flamboyant. Uh, my friend Johan brought it around for me this morning. He did very well, very kind of responsibly, pressed the doorbell, put it on the doormat, stepped back a couple of paces. Uh, he does that all the time. Nothing to do with coronavirus. He's just terrified of me, I think. Um, maybe maybe he's scared of my kids. I don't know. He's scared that they're going to come out and bite him with their diseases. Again, nothing to do with coronavirus. But, but, but last week we looked a little different. And last week we also spent time particularly on the bleak circuit, the bleak situation, humanly speaking, in which we find ourselves. The way that Genesis 6 describes the human condition is is bleak is dark and uh, we we labored that you, you really missed out if you weren't there it's very happy and to be honest i'm i'm i did find it a tricky thing because a lot of the time preachers attempted to just dodge those parts of the bible who wants to be told you know what who wants to know about the grim dark side of human nature especially at a time of difficulty and crisis why, why spend the whole sermon doing that and yet I honestly think it's one of the key things for us to actually face the reality of the evil human condition, the wickedness at the heart of mankind is deeply important because it gives the right perspective on our situation. It helps us to understand the ways of God as well. Otherwise, how do we understand his judgments? How do we understand the things he allows to happen? 
It's hard enough anyway to understand why a, a coronavirus takes place or even a, going further back, you know, something like the tsunami of about 15 years plus ago. I remember when that happened, just thinking tens of thousands, families, children swept away. It's similar, I suppose, to what we read about in these verses of Genesis, the, the, the flood that sweeps multitudes and multitudes away. How could a loving and kind God do that? Does he lack compassion? And sometimes we fall into that trap of imagining that God doesn't really care, that God doesn't understand compassion. God's not a very kind and sympathetic person. But we're failing when we think that way to understand the serious nature of human evil, of how far short we have fallen. How serious is our own evil before God? We, we simply don't get it. We don't see a, a few key things. We don't understand. It's a little bit like, I suppose, a, a, a husband who's, got in, into a kind of a pornography habit and he's, he's looking at porn and it's like, I don't understand why my wife gets so offended. I don't, I don't know why she should, she, she's taking it too seriously, taking it too personally. She's being too sensitive about it. It's just, ah, everybody does this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, you're just being, you're being over the top. But when you see a situation like that and a, and a wife genuinely feeling a sense of betrayal, a sense of hurt from her husband's behavior, what you're getting there is, is some idea of how, I guess, ill-equipped we are or insensitive we can be in our understanding of God's pain against our sin. When we do anything through our deeds, through our words, through even our thoughts, that is displeasing to God, whether it's whatever. It might be something that you think, well, just, I sinned against my, my, my husband or my wife or my kids or my sister or my mum or, or my colleague or my neighbour or my, my friend. That's who I sinned against. The Bible actually says, no, 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 first of all, it's in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Sin in the end is primarily against God, whoever else it's against. And as such, it's it's not just inconvenient for him. It's profoundly grieving. That's the word. It grieves the heart of God, our sin does. So it's, it's no good us saying, well, God, you're not a God of compassion. You don't care about the people that died in the flood or the people that suffered in this situation. Friends, if we feel compassion for people who are suffering, how much more does the God of compassion? How dare we, strange Modern Western people, it tends to be a modern idea, this one, that we, you know, that we're compassionate and God isn't. You often hear secular people talk like that, you know, that we, we're very compassionate modern people and God of the Bible, not very compassionate God. It's a crazy delusion. If compassion is anything, if compassion is anything real, it must be from a God who invented it. He is the source of it. So he must feel far more grieved as he explicitly says that he does in, in books like Ezekiel, where he says, you know, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God grieves over human suffering more than we could ever know. And yet even that grief needs to find its place against the grief that our sin causes him, our betrayal of him causes it hurts him in ways that we can't understand. It is more of an affront to him than we can really get. 
So this is a this is a big deal for us to come to terms with. We need to we need to step outside of our kind of small little thinking and see how how grieving, how infectious, how it drags all of creation down. Even it says even the animals. You know, does God hate animals? Why should animals be judged for human sin? Because the whole of creation. It's not because God doesn't love people and animals. He loves creation so much, so much more than we could understand. And yet he takes sin so much more seriously. There's places in the Bible where people get a glimpse of this. There's places like in Isaiah chapter six, where the prophet Isaiah, who's a good, you know, religious, pious, righteous person, he has an experience of God in the temple. And he says, I am undone. Woe is me. In other words, you know, just you know, I am deconstructed. You've taken me apart piece by piece. I am, I am brought back to nothing because I have seen for the first time. I thought I knew, but I did not know how holy you are and how sinful I am, how unrighteous, how evil is within me. And Isaiah gets the shock of his life. He is overwhelmed with his need, with his desperate condition. And that's part of getting to know the real God of the Bible. I would say if you've never had a taste of that sense of your need, if you've never understood that he is so other, that he is so holy and above, we can have the nicest church-going religious people who never get to a point of the soul's despair at its own impoverished condition where we don't see that we desperately need a savior but we don't see that we desperately fall short of the holy 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 standard of god and if we begin to see it if we begin even perhaps you're listening to me talking now and you're feeling for the first time in your life a sense of your own need it can be an uncomfortable thing it is for these people in the bible sometimes but Thank God for the discomfort because it means that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is showing you, helping you to see your need of him. And nothing could be more precious and needed. We don't read these stories and understand them until we see the seriousness of sin and the grief it brings to the heart of God and the way it is intolerable. See, this is the, the thing that I see in verse 7, the, the resolve in the heart of God. I will blot out man whom I've created. And later on in, in verse 13, you see the, the clear intentionality. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Because for God, this isn't something he can sweep under the rug. He can't just come to terms with human wickedness. He can't come to terms with a creation project, his great joy being utterly turned upside down by our selfishness. He can't. Why should he? How can he? In, in Genesis chapter one, we talked about this last week, you get that multiple rendition of the phrase, God saw and said, it's good. It's good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And then in chapter six, you get this, this uh, clearly opposite, this, this kind of openly opposing phrase, this almost diametrically opposed, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and was grieved. 
God's, God's joyful project, the good thing of creation, all that he loved about it, the purity, the joy, the, the restfulness, the, the happiness, the work, the fruitfulness, the pleasure, the, the rhythms, the structures, the, the, the symmetries and the beauties and the asymmetries and everything about his, his blissfully good project of creation that he looked on and says it's very good. And now in chapter six, it is all an absolute affront to him. It's like the damn opposite of what he intended, as we have corrupted it and insisted on our corruption of it. God can't just come to terms with that. You ever had to come to terms with something? Some of us, we've tried to come to terms with stuff, brutal realities in our lives that we've had to just try to come to terms with, you know, come to terms with a, a, a terrible marriage or corruption in, in the company you work for or a, a criminal act that was never dealt with properly, an injustice in the courts that was that was just allowed. We come to terms with stuff and we know we should, we know there's something fundamentally flawed. We know there's a foundation missing. We know there's something, this house won't stand up. It's wrong, it's rotten to the core. It needs uprooting, there's something in the roots. You can't just take the leaves off this thing. It's a weed, pull it up. And this is how God sees it in, in Genesis 6. The whole thing is so flawed. And only he has got the, the right to make that diagnosis. Surely he's the creator and that's the very diagnosis he makes. I will make an end because sin and the burden of sin is an intolerable one. It must be dealt with. Maybe you've, you've thought of it like that in your own experience. You, I, can, I can think of uh, one or two examples even now. Think about what we're going through with the lockdown. It seems intolerable. It seems, it seems unthinkable. How could we be, you know, waking up every morning thinking, well, it wasn't a dream, it's real. This, that we really are in this strange episode in human history. It seems unthinkable. We're hurting the economy. How could we be doing this? Because apparently it's necessary. Because the bleak alternative is so serious. You know, sometimes it's it's a it is an institution like maybe you've seen the movie Spotlight where where people uncover corruption and it needs to be addressed and all the pressure all the temptation that comes upon the whistleblowers to not do it and and the, the temptation to just come to turn oh just just let it go sweep it under the rug it doesn't matter don't want to don't cause a fuss don't cause trouble it's a huge temptation isn't it. And, I can imagine many of us think, why doesn't God just let, let things fly? When I was a kid, I, I got involved in shoplifting. I hope my kids aren't watching this. I know they are watching this, so what can you do? I, I, I got involved in shoplifting with some friends from school at a young age, and uh, I didn't like the stuff we were nicking, actually. I just liked the adrenaline rush, I think. And I got to where I realised it was wrong. I had guilt problem, terrible guilt problem. And I, I said, I'll never do it again. But it was too late, we'd actually been rumbled. <laughs> my mum had been called by another mum and uh, the mums had got together. And I, I was told by my mum, tomorrow we're not going to school, or at least not straight away, we're gonna go to Woolworths and Tesco's and you're gonna bring those things to the manager and you're gonna say sorry and give them back. And I remember just arguing with my mum for, I don't know, more than an hour probably, or trying to argue with her, but she was very good, she was very implacable. It's like, no, because 
I wanted to just have the personal relief. I wanted to just have, I said, I'm never going to do it again. I've, I've decided, Mama, I'm done with it. I don't want to do it ever again. She didn't think that was enough. Just for me, to, just sort of personal relief. She, you know, some things need to be put right. Some things need to be restored and set straight again. There's one commentator on Genesis chapter six who says this. He says, humankind craves personal relief. God must have things right. It's the kind of God he is. We can't just get individually catered for. Oh, you get relief, but the creation stays completely out of whack. No, no, no. God must set things right. That's his way. Now that causes us problems and difficulties if we're honest, because we've got a huge question here. We've got a couple of questions. How can there be any hope? And the answer is, first of all, in verse eight, which is one of those happy verses in the Bible. It's actually one of the, the, the most precious verses. It starts with one of the glorious Bible words, the word but, shows up a few times, or, or the word nevertheless, or something like that, where hope steps in. After all the bleak diagnosis, after all the horror being described, line by line by line, verse eight, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favour. Favour is the answer. You ever received favour from someone? Imagine receiving favour from God. That's the only hope. Now, what does it mean here? We need to be careful because there's a lot of kind of classic interpretative fails that people fall into here. One of them is, is the new classic one is, we tend to read verse 8 and then verse 9 and think they're basically saying the same thing. Because it says in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then we think that's why verse 8 says, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. But we make a big mistake there. Because you mustn't think that the reason Noah found favour with God is because he's the goody two-shoes. He's the, he's, the, he's the kind of Mahatma Gandhi of his generation. He's the kind, he's the goody. All the others have failed. He stands out. He's all right. Because, oh, they're all evil. But no, you're okay. You're the winner. You come first. You're the best of a bad lot. You can have my favour. No. That's so important that we get rid of that idea. It's not because Noah tried hard. No, no, no. Noah, well, first of all, <laughs> Noah's the same as everybody else. It says in verse 5, he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was... Noah is included, right? He's either human or he isn't. Noah's one of the one of the men, or he's not one of the humans, and as such, he's just as fallen, just as evil, just as wicked. Essentially, that's who he is. Even Noah. Yes, even Noah. Now that might sound crazy, you might think, well, does that mean no one is ever good ever? You know, I look around, there are some good people. You know, the NHS, the people serving, crisis brings out the best in people. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you'd agree. There's a lot of good things we can celebrate at the moment going on, right? Yes, absolutely. Does that mean that people are still basically good? No. The human, the human race, as far as I was describing it, is still locked up in evil and depravity. But God is too kind to let us fall into the monstrous version of ourselves that we might fall into. God is too merciful and gracious. He doesn't let it happen. 
How does he stop it? Well, it's what people call common grace. He prevents us. He restrains the level of evil in the human heart. So yeah, we can be good people as well, but it's all grace. It's all God's kindness holding us back. Because left to ourselves, I'm afraid we would be. That's the, that's the, that's, that is the judgment that Jesus gives in the Bible. We've got to be straight with it. We've got to be clear with it. That's the first reason that we can't take on the idea that Noah found favour with God because he was a goodie. Won't work. The second reason it won't work, the whole Bible says the opposite. The whole Bible, page after page after page, just go through so many scriptures, consistently making the point. Every mouth is stopped. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one shall be declared righteous before you. And many, 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 many verses that I could refer to. The third reason it won't work is, is very simply, in verse 9, you've got here the next stage of the, of the Bible here. But actually, it starts with an important chapter break or a section break. When it says, these are the generations of Noah, in the book of Genesis, that's like a new section. When it uses that phrase, these are the generations of such and such, it's a new section of the story. And what's happening between verse 8 and verse 9 is a massive break. Verse 8 is like a summary verse of the whole of Noah's story. Wicked world, God judging it, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Stop. Chapter ended. It's, it, or prologue, intro ended. Now we'll tell you how it happened. Now we'll tell you what went on next. The idea is verse 9 is not the reason for verse 8. If anything, it's the other way around. The reason Noah lived a good life was because he undeservedly found favour with God. And that's the fourth point as well. The fourth reason it doesn't work is because the very phrase, Noah found favour with the Lord, turns up many, many other times in the Bible. And every time that phrase, found favour with the Lord, found favour with the Lord, each person, Ruth, Lot, Abraham, Mephibosheth, uh, uh, Mary in the New Testament, each time the emphasis is on the helplessness of the person receiving the favour and the sheer generosity of the God who gives favour. It is all a gift. We've got to come to terms with that. And this is, this is massive. If we're going to understand our Bibles right, we've got to come to terms with the fact that favour, kind goodness from God is always a sheer gift it kind of goes against our instincts. It goes, it, we have to accept it. It almost feels wrong. If you've never got to the point where you thought, God's mercy to me right now, God's kindness, God's loving grace towards me, in spite of my sin, my shame, my failure, in spite of everything that I know about myself, not everyone else knows, but the stuff I know, he's still favouring me, still loving me. It feels wrong. If you've never got to that point, I wonder if you've really understood his grace. Because it does feel scandalous. It feels outrageous. It seems like something wrong must be happening. But he insists on it. It is a gift. We want to earn it, but we can't. You know, I remember a, a friend of my dad's in America who uh, gave me a hot fudge Sunday. We were going out for a... a um, a meal at a fast food place and a drive through and he ordered too much food. It was American, you know, just too much food and, you know, and a hot fudge sundae left over. And it was for him, but he didn't want it. So he said, oh, you can have it. I'm like, I can't. 
whole hot fudge thing. You know, I'm like a 14 year old boy from Hove. It's, it's scandalous, you know, it's like, it's, like a, it's like a stash of weed. You know, I can't, it's just, it's, it's sort of over the top. I couldn't believe that he was giving me this out of his largesse. Oh, you have that. So I said, no, no, I can't have it. And eventually he said, he turned to me, he said, you are having it. If you don't have this, you'll have this instead. And he offered me like this kind of ridiculously expensive foreign chocolates that were like kind of for adults, you know, like kind of crazy expensive. And I was like, okay, 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 I'll have the, I'll have the ice cream. Because, because I, I was, I was finding it so uncomfortable to receive a gift. And he was insisting on being generous and he was taking delight, sheer pleasure in the wonder of just giving. And there's the heart of God. He gives gifts free. He gives his salvation. He gives his favor. It is a gift to unrighteous people like Noah, like you, like me. And we've got to come to terms with that. We've got to receive it. Some of you have never done that. You never allowed God to be different to you. You've always insisted it's got to be something you earn. It's got to be. On and on. I've got to do my bit. You've never realized that that's not how it will not do it that way. And you see it again in, in the New Testament. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, look at the way it's described here. It sounds like Genesis 6. Listen to the words. Listen to how similar this sounds in, in the right near the end of the Bible. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sound like Genesis 6? But God. Here you go. Genesis 6 verse 8, Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, it's not your doing. And if you think about it, you'll You'll, you'll have to come to terms with that, to have any real relationship with God. You have to come to terms with your desperate need and his overwhelming, outrageous generosity. When you start to see those things, you're starting to see the good news of Jesus. And it has to be Jesus. Why? Because if you're thinking properly, you'll already have a question. How can I talk in one moment about God not coming to terms with evil and sweeping it under the rug as though that was good judgment and then talk about God just giving away mercy, just giving it away, just giving away. That doesn't work, right? How can God do that? And that's a good question, surely. That's the right question. How can God, the God who says, no, I will send a flood, I will judge, I will deal with sin. How can, how can Noah just get away with it? How do I get away with it? How might you? In the end, no one just gets away with it. Actually, there's nothing unrighteous about God's mercy. It's perfectly just. Because notice the way Paul described it. He made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? Jesus 
had to be brought back from death. Why did Jesus die? Why did the Son of God die? Why did the eternal God become a man and die, get buried? Why? There's actually a place Jesus talks in Luke chapter 12 that hit me just this morning. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. I'll read it to you, the very phrase he uses. This is Luke uh, chapter 12, verse 50. And the reason I raise it is because sometimes in the Bible, Noah's flood is talked talked about as baptism. It's like the flood is a picture of baptism, like judgment falling, the waters that drown, the waters that destroy are like the baptism waters that when someone is baptised in Jesus' name, they go down into the water, their old life is taken away, their old life is what comes up, their new life is what comes up. That's baptism. It's, it's like the flood, it's judgment coming. And Jesus talked like this about himself. He says in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptised with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You know, Jesus had already been baptised in water by this time. So what's he talking about? Jesus was going to be baptised in a different way. When Jesus was crucified, the Bible makes it clear that he was being plunged into the judgment of God. All of God's fury at human wickedness all of God's grief against our sin, all of God's longing to set things straight, all of God's appetite for justice and righteousness and for his creation to be established on his order forever and ever. And the penalty that must go to humankind who from the beginning have snatched and destroyed his creation. It was all dealt with. Mankind was judged. Humanity was baptised, was flooded with the fury and just judgment of God on the cross. On the cross, it wasn't swept under the rug, friends. On the cross, humanity was judged in Christ, in Jesus, in the new Adam. Jesus dealt with it. Jesus went through the flood. Jesus went through it all. And he said, I I have a baptism to undergo. And and I long for it to be accomplished. He even said, you may know this, one of his last phrases from the cross, it is accomplished. His very last words, it's finished, it's done, it's accomplished. He went through the flood. He went through it for you. He was drowned in all our sin and shame and our guilt. He was drowned in our just judgment and penalty. It overwhelmed him. It covered him, smothered him. He cried out, why have you forsaken me? Cut off as the waters swept over him. Went down into the grave. It's Jesus. He did it. He did it. He did it so you and I could be justly forgiven, not having our sins under the rug, justly, righteously stand before God, knowing, like Noah, we stand on firm ground 
He's taken us out of many waters and set our feet upon a rock. This is the story for any that trust him. Who are you trusting? Let me ask you that. Who are you trusting? You've got to face God. Go, right? Everybody will. We're going to die one day. You will face him. How are you going to handle that? You trusting in your own righteousness? There's none to trust in. You're dead in your sins. No, no, no. Only one man is truly righteous. You trust him. You join yourself to him. You turn to him. You turn away from your sin. You put your trust in Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, and you are raised with him. You do that today. Receive the free gift of righteousness today. Noah looked forward to Jesus. We look back to him. Have you done that? Let me urge you to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this one who's dealt with the serious problem of our sin forever and ever. And we pray that we would learn to walk in the good of his free gift for us forever and ever. Amen.